0: This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 5, Gaines Hall. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone! Hope you had a great week. Mine has gotten progressively better little by little Um, I had my wrist cut open and a nice titanium plate put in with some screws Um, but it's healing up nicely I can almost use all my fingers and I'm just trying to look on the bright side the bright side right now is that I probably never have to go through that weird body scanner at the airport ever again I think I'm gonna be in that special line of people with metal in their body so That's what's keeping me going this week. But today I am bringing you a very special edition episode, and I'm calling that because I deviated from my scheduled um, topic list because I want to tell you guys about Gaines Hall. And the reason that this is sort of an urgent need for me or from the community is that a few weeks ago I was lucky to take part in a roundtable discussion with members of the preservation community in Atlanta, and our specific topic was Atlanta's African American Landmarks. I have to thank Historic Atlanta for putting this whole thing together. I turned into this weird history nerd fangirl, so I just got to see a bunch of people in real life that I had only ever followed on social media for years, um, or read their articles, things like that, so I was super nervous. Um, I think when I, it was my turn to introduce myself, I was literally shaking, Um, but I got to meet a bunch of people that I had been admiring. It was, it was a great experience. One of my favorite quotes of the day was up on the screen when we started the presentation and it said that Montgomery, Alabama is often called the cradle of the civil rights movement. Birmingham, Alabama was called the tipping point, but Atlanta has always been home to the movement. And we as a city need to treasure and preserve the city's Black history because it's our history. And these are stories that didn't occur anywhere else in the South, just only in this city. So as a group, we identify that Gaines Hall is our most pressing and endangered structure, and each of us pledged to do what we could collectively, but also individually. So for me, That is sharing the story of Gaines Hall with you guys, with the hope that I can get some of you to understand how important this building is, maybe you can be as outraged as we are with its current state, and maybe there's a listener out there that's going to be that one person that gets to affect change in this situation. Now, the story of Gaines Hall really starts with the story of Atlanta University. So today, you are getting a two-for-one episode special, because I cannot tell you about Gaines Hall without telling you this story first. And we begin just after the Civil War. Newly freed slaves are migrating into the city and they're establishing shantytowns. Now, a shantytown is a settlement that usually was on the outskirts of town or the outskirts of a city where all the houses were pretty shoddy construction, kind of slapped together. No city services whatsoever. Uh, many of them were. Um, Flood prone, it was just not a great place to live. But right after the war in Atlanta, we had five shanty towns that had formed. And they each had names. So they were named Shermantown, Jenningstown, Beaver Slide, Mechanicsville, and Summerhill. Now, those last two might sound familiar because those are actually neighborhoods still in Atlanta with the same name. So I think that's really cool. And I was thinking I've got to do an episode on that in the future. But Jenningstown is the one I want to talk about today. It was in the first ward. It was a shantytown built in 1869 at the very top of Diamond Hill. Now the population after the war in Jennings Town was about 2,500 people, and almost all of them were black, with the exception of a few white missionaries that were living there. It had really rough roads, completely inadequate water supply, but it was one of the shantytowns, one of the few shantytowns that wasn't prone to flooding because it was on the hilltop. So many others, especially Shermantown, were really prone to floods. Education had been denied to slaves, so the first order of business, so to speak, was setting up African-American schools. Throughout the country, we see the creation of Howard University in D.C., Fisk University in Nashville, among others, and really the American Missionary Association, so I'm going to shorten it to the AMA, uh, led the change throughout the country. So they established schools, colleges, and churches for Blacks in southern cities like Atlanta. And the goal was really assimilation. And it was assimilation into the civic order defined by the Anglo-Protestant culture of America. And this is where it gets a little complex. Organizations like the AMA, they did great things, and their hearts were essentially in the right places. But at the core was this idea that newly freed slaves needed to be taught how to participate in civilized society. That without these prescribed values, all hell would kind of break loose. African-Americans throughout the South were attempting to kind of define their own middle-class identity, and Atlanta whites were very concerned about this fact and the fact that they saw um, fellow Black Atlantans gaining upward mobility. So it was a very contentious time. Now entering stage left is a man named Edmund Asa Ware. He was a white man born in Massachusetts in 1837, He goes to Yale, and while he's at Yale, he's very inspired by anti slavery advocates. So, two years after graduating from Yale, he heads to work for the American Missionary Association. Eventually, I think it's 1866, he finds his way in Atlanta, and then he actually ends up being head of the AMA Educational Mission in Atlanta, but also superintendent of education for the entire state of Georgia. He became principal of the Storrs School, and the Storrs School is really fascinating because It's one of the two first schools for African-American children that was established by Blacks. So um, kind of like the white missionaries came to Atlanta and were like, oh, hey, we're here to start schools, but there were two schools already in existence. Now, the charter for Atlanta University was obtained in 1867, and it opened for classes two years later with 89 students. Asa Ware served as a president, and he was president for about 16 years. Now, because of the low level of education amongst post-Civil War Black Atlantans, the university wasn't really acting as a university yet. It was kind of like a sub-collegiate school. I mean, think about it. There's not exactly kids, um, Black kids at that time, that had graduated anything for them to sort of go to college. So um, there was kindergarten programs, there was sort of like an elementary school and then high school, and then they would give you college programs as well. What's amazing is that a decade after starting the school, 82% of the graduates from the collegiate program were already teaching in schools around the community. And they estimate over 150,000 black children in Georgia were taught by teachers Who were trained at Atlanta University. Where would start the school year by telling all of the students, quote, however you may be mistreated in the city or elsewhere, I want you to know that the moment you set foot on these grounds, you are free men in a free country, end quote. One of the first things that this new institution did was, of course, build school buildings. So they opened North Hall in 1869, and it was designed by William Parkins, who was one of the most significant architects actually in Atlanta after the war. So he did the original Kimball Ho- House and the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, which is that church in downtown Atlanta, um, one of the oldest buildings, if I'm correct, in downtown Atlanta. North Hall, when it opened, was supposed to be the girls' dorm, but that was the only building. So the first year, it was the all-students' dorm, and then in 1880, they actually a- added an extra wing. Now, South Hall was opened the next year. So, that was the boys' dormitory, and it had room for 60 boys, and it had a little kind of a little school room inside, and then a kitchen. So, now we have a girls' dorm, North Hall, a boys' dorm, South Hall. Now, Stone Hall was the main administrative building, and that opened in 1882. So, inside of Stone Hall, you had a chapel, lecture halls, labs, administrative offices. And this building was actually the offices of W.E.B. Du Bois when he was at Atlanta University from 1897 to 1910. It was in these halls that he found inspiration for his book, The Souls of Black Folk. And these were three buildings all next to each other. And they were really impressive. There is a 1892 um, bird's eye aerial that's hand-drawn. I'm going to put that on the post for this episode on the website so you guys can see. But what I love is that in Souls of Black Folk, W.E. Du Bois actually writes this beautifully poetic snippet describing these buildings. And so I want to read this to you because I'm not going to do it justice if I don't read this exactly. So he says, quote, The hundred hills of Atlanta are not all crowned with factories. On one toward the west, the setting sun throws three buildings in bold relief against the sky. The beauty of the group lies in its simple unity, a broad lawn of green rising from the red street and mingled roses and peaches, north and south, two plain and stately halls, and in the mists, half hidden in Ivy, a larger building, boldly, graceful, sparingly decorated with one low spire, end quote. I mean, that moved me. <laughs> so like, hopefully I'll move you guys to say it when you see the picture. Um, now, the building's on the campus would continue to appear. So you have the three main ones. Uh, they added one called Ferber Cottage. So Ferber Cottage was built 1899, and it was kind of like a model house. It was for home at class, so 18 female students would live there, and they were basically learning how to maintain a household. So I think that the whole idea, I mean, it's archaic, but it sounds pretty cool. I wish I could have seen that how that worked inside. By 1905, um, they added four more buildings, and one of them included a Carnegie Library, which was possibly one of the oldest libraries for African Americans in the city. I know that when I read about the Auburn Avenue Branch Library, that wasn't built until the 20s, but the only books available for Black doctors, lawyers, and other professionals, let alone the working class, were only on the West Side at Atlanta University. So there was no other access to books for Blacks. Now the white men and women who were working at Atlanta University were committed to the promotion of racial equality. They lived in the same buildings, they sat at the same tables with their students in the dining hall, and this was appalling to the white majority of the city of Atlanta who of course believed that African Americans should be regulated to an inferior status. There is an account of in 1874 a white Macon newspaper editor. Uh, The governor would have this trip basically where he let people go to the university and see how they were doing if that makes any sense so they would they were able to see how the students were learning and kind of give a little report I don't even want to repeat what this newspaper editor said because it was so horrible but the man was horrified at seeing the races come together in the dining hall and sit next to each other and talk to each other and he wrote in the newspaper how horrible this was and just I mean, how detrimental this was to the society. Now, it wasn't long before classrooms were also integrated. So when faculty, white faculty at the school had children that became of school age, they were usually not welcome in the white schools of the city. So they attended classes with black students. Now, noting this city officials started to demand that faculty children attend the white public schools. And they threatened the university with the loss of its state appropriation, which I think it was about $8,000 that they got every year. Um, Asa Aware said, you know what? I'd rather forego the subsidy than change what we're doing. So the man gave up that money and he kind of forged ahead with this integrated education. When Asa Ware died in 1894, he was only 48 years old, and he was initially buried at Westview Cemetery, but the university pushed to have him moved and reburied in front of Stone Hall. And that is where he still is today. So if you go there, there's a huge boulder, you can't really miss it, with a plaque on it, and under there is the body of Asa Ware. Now things changed a little bit by 1929, and that's when the Atlanta University Center is created. So this always confused me a little bit, but um, you have Atlanta University, but what they did is they combined with Spelman and Morehouse into one big collegiate unit, and they each took on a specific role. So Morehouse and Spelman were undergraduate colleges, and now Atlanta University took on a new role as the graduate school. By 1932, Morris Brown which was established in 1881 by African-Americans, the only black college with no ties to white missionary money. They had started their school over in the Old Fourth Ward, actually. But by 1932, or I think a little bit later, 1930s, they decided to move their school to the university center campus just so they could have all the schools together. So Atlanta University leased all of its campus to Morris Brown. So now all the schools are together, and Atlanta University kind of just moves up the hill a little bit. Now with this move, Morris Brown becomes the owner of some of the oldest structures in Atlanta. Now they rename Stone Hall to Fountain Hall. They rename North Hall to Gaines Hall. And they actually demolished South Hall and replaced it with a science lab. Not the best move, but hey. So to recap, because I think this is the first time I've actually said Gaines Hall, what I've been calling North Hall is renamed Gaines Hall, and then Stone is renamed Fountain. By 1988, Atlanta University is experiencing some financial difficulties, so they merge with Clark University, and the official name going forward is Clark Atlanta. So that might bring more bells for you guys, because that's what it's known now, so you can go to Clark Atlanta You know, sign up tomorrow if you'd like. Now, this sounds like the end of the episode, right? I mean, kind of wraps it all up. Unfortunately, the story is far from over, and it gets a lot more complicated from here on. I don't want to get into the struggles of Morris Brown, but the college has had um, some issues, (laughs) if you want to say that. Now, in 2014, the college sold 36 acres of land kind of to get a handle on its finances. But the people who bought the land was the city of Atlanta, who bought 30 acres, and then Friendship Baptist um, bought the other six acres. So the city of Atlanta pays $10 million for 30 acres and included all of the buildings that I just told you about. Now the problem is, when Atlanta University deeded this land to Morris Brown back in the 1930s, they did it with a clause that says it must always be used for educational purposes or else ownership would revert back to Clark Atlanta. What does not compute for me is that while the city of Atlanta is making this purchase, Clark Atlanta is over on the side practically waving their hands going, hey, we actually own this, kind of like at a wedding when the priest asked for objections. Except here, the metaphoric couple got married anyway, and they shouldn't have. Clark Atlanta filed suit against the city and won every single court case. So uh, just, I think, in June of this year, Clark Atlanta officially got this land back. So let's recap that. The city of Atlanta spent $10.5 million to buy this land, also spent court fees, and never got to keep it. But it gets even more fun. A year after the city purchased it, Gaines Hall catches fire. Now, they had an insurance policy on it, and they ended up getting $1.4 million. Small steps were taken, but nothing substantial was ever done. So you have a building catch fire, um, and at this point we're talking about two or three years ago. You can't just leave it there, but that's what they did. So we have Gaines Hall, Fountain Hall, and Ferber Cottage, all owned once again by Clark Atlanta. But as someone said in our meeting, you can't steal someone's car, crash it, and then give them back the total car and walk away. You have to return it in the same condition. And this is sort of where the stalemate is. So both sides say they're working together, but nothing actually gets done. The city of Atlanta needs to restore Gaines Hall to the condition it was when they bought it, and then they need to give it back to Clark Atlanta. Meanwhile, Gaines Hall sits and crumbles day after day. And now estimates for rehabilitation are around $12 million. The thing is, the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium is very literally in Gaines Hall front yard. I'm not kidding. When I was standing in front the other day, I felt like if I had a rock, I could hit it. So we've built a brand new stadium. And not just that, we've spent about $25 million to build a very... Fancy pedestrian bridge for the Super Bowl two blocks away from Gaines Hall. So here you have these buildings rotting right next to all of this excess happening. And I didn't even mention, but Fountain Hall is also boarded up. So even though it didn't catch fire and it's not crumbling, it is boarded up and headed that way. Gaines Hall is a monument to the founders of Atlanta University's vision, this biracial society basic human civil rights, all of the students and teachers came together, and they did things here that didn't happen anywhere else in the U.S. And there's a quote from a um, Georgia State professor that I love that says, it was one of the first signs of what Martin Luther King Jr. would call the beloved society, but nobody knows about it. So for this weekend, I ask that you find someone to tell this story to. But better yet, go see Gaines Hall with your own eyes. It's right next to Ferber Cottage. Um, there's a lot there on that block to see. It's really easy to just drive right up and take a look, and you can see the condition that it's in. If you're a resident of the city of Atlanta, contact City Hall, email your council member, and tell them that this building needs to be saved. All right. I'm off the soapbox, but if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends about it. Visit archiveatlantapodcast.com for a ton of pictures I have about um, Gaines Hall and the buildings around it. Now, I also put some links to a few great books that I read for this episode that I highly recommend. If you go and take some photos of your own, please hashtag archive atlanta but also there's a new hashtag um that we talked about in the meeting and it's hashtag save Gaines hall so go ahead and explore have a great weekend and i'll talk to you next week